0: Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is
0: Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim, Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. On today's show, I have none other than Joe Sandberg. He's a progressive entrepreneur on a mission to end poverty. Sandberg is a national advocate for raising the minimum wage. And as a matter of fact, he raised the minimum wage for his employees at Aspiration.com. Ooh, ooh, we, y'all notice that's a ooh, wee moment. $25 minimum wage, living what he preaches. Hello, somebody on that. So anyway, National Advocate for Raising the Minimum Wage was a national surrogate during the Bernie Sanders campaign for president. He was a leading figure in the campaign signature policy for a living wage. And as a pro-business progressive Democrat, and yes, I did say a pro-progressive Democrat, he speaks to the urgency of including a wage hike in the pandemic stimulus package and speaks to the behind the scenes work that progressives are doing to push this administration further to the left by lifting up this country. I'm telling you, listen, y'all, and I did say y'all, you don't want to miss this. This is so good, kicking all of the knowledge. He's also a steward of the movement to pass the Earned Income Tax Credit for low-income families in California. Joe is the co-founder of Aspiration.com, a socially conscious online financial company that enables customers to choose their own fee levels on checking and investment accounts and offers managed funds that are 100% fossil-free. He also manages Working Heroes Packs, a people-powered political organization dedicated to electing candidates who have a plan to end America's outrageous levels of income inequality. He's also a member of an organization called Business for Medicare for All. Hello, somebody. Come on, come with me. We're going in to see Joe. Hello, somebody. Uh, Welcome back. I am so excited today. We have none other than Joe Sandberg with us, and we're going to talk about all of the most pressing issues of our time. Now, we might have to have 10 more shows for this, but we're going to get through as much as we can in the minutes that we have together. How are you doing today, Joe Sandberg?
3: I'm doing well. I'm really glad to be with you.
0: I am so glad to have you with me as well. So, I want to get to the good stuff first. Sometimes I try to say the really, really good stuff to the end, but this is too good. You know how sometimes you like to eat your dessert before the dinner? That's what we're going to do right now.
3: So, talk What about to- if that's most of the time for me? Is that, most- <laughs> is that most of the time?
0: Is that most of the time? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to start right off where you like to start with the dessert. We follow each other on Twitter, and so I'm scrolling because I got to know what is Joe Sandberg talking about at any given time, and oh my God, your company, the decision to raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour, what? You know, why? How? Because there, there's constant rhetoric out there about how the economy would suffer and if we increase the minimum wage just even to $15 an hour. You got so many people in the establishment class, be they elected or corporate, like making all the excuses in the world as to why we can't have the floor of $15 an hour minimum wage, as you and I discuss all the time. But you went for $25 an hour. What say you about that?
3: The time is now and we have to act. I think that we're all just sick of the words, which are cheap. And um, we have to act in our own lives. And and I want to do everything I can. And it begins with the company that I've co-founded in Aspiration. When you look at the financial industry more broadly, it's an industry that represents $1.5 trillion dollars—the T of GDP. Yet there are hundreds of thousands of people in the financial industry that work full-time but live in poverty. And I want the law to change at the federal level. You and I and others have been trying to change the law. But in the meanwhile, I wanna create pressure on other companies to do the right thing by leading with example. And that's begun with a $25 minimum wage right now. Unlike some other attempts by other companies where they say they'll raise it in 10 years or five years, it's now that we've raised it, It became effective immediately. And um, to your other point, yeah companies can do this and in fact end up more successful because when you treat your team as full human beings then they're going to be even more effective and more creative and more successful in their job when they don't have to worry about where healthcare is coming from when they don't have to worry about whether they're going to be able to pay rent and i think one of the things that's broken in our economy among so many other things is that we've treated human beings like variables in a spreadsheet like robots
0: yes
3: and and we're not. We're humans. And how we do in one part of our life is connected to how we're doing in another part of our life. And if we're living in financial distress or insecurity and wondering if we're going to be able to afford to take our kids to the doctor, how could anyone reasonably think that we're going to be doing a good job in other parts of our life? And so paying people a living wage is moral and it's smart. It's good business, it's good for the economy. And eventually we're going to get to a living wage. I wouldn't bet against you and I and others with our determination. It's a question of when, not if. And when we get there, people are going to look back and they're going to ask themselves why it took so long, because the results are going to be so successful for everyone, for the people who earn a living wage and for everyone else. And I really believe, and I know you share this with conviction too, that we're only as strong as the people who are struggling. And when we lift up those who are struggling, then we all get better.
0: That's exactly right.
3: Unfortunately, for the last sixty years, we've left behind the people who are struggling.
0: We have, and gleefully so. When you think about the people who actually control the levers of power, have been working constantly uh, against the people who have the greatest need. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. It's not like we're without the capacity and the means to fix it. And that's really, yes. I mean, by way of your example pulling that pressure so we're putting the political pressure but at the same time you and your colleagues your partners you're not waiting for the feds to get a clue or for states in this nation to get a clue you're putting the pressure on all sides and and I I really do think that's a beautiful thing something you just said is really uh speaking to me you said it's moral it's smart and it's good business so to the people who the naysayers out there who Say, and I've heard it all, and you, I'm sure you have too. So let me start with this one. These people are not worth $25 an hour. If they had those type of skills, then that the market would bear that, but they're not worth it. They don't have a skill set to make that kind of money. What would you say to that person?
3: I have to, I have to filter myself first. So <laughs> so that's appropriate for public consumption. Um, let's remind everyone that this so called market isn't some force that exists in outer space that came to earth in some ancient aliens thing the market is just the product of the decisions that we all make and how we organize it it's something that we create it's not something within which we exist so this idea of what the market is going to do has been used as this boogeyman for 60 years to try and bully us into forsaking the needs of working people and the irony is that we've also left our economy under fulfilling its potential. Because when our economy, which it is, consists of 70% consumer spending, that means that the more money that people have in their pockets, the better the economy does. We have an economy for decades where the people who need to buy things don't have any money. And the people who have all the money have run out of things they need to buy. And you don't need more than addition, subtraction, and really that's about it to know that if you have a consumer economy and the people who need to buy things have no money, your economy isn't going to be doing as well as it could. So it begins on that kind of top-down level of understanding if you put money in the pockets of people who need to buy things, everyone's going to be better off. There's going to be more spending and more hiring, and more economic growth. Then it continues, I think, to the moral, which is this notion of worth. Yeah. If you don't believe that your team in your business are all worth healthcare and a living wage, then you shouldn't own a business. Unfortunately, we've enabled business owners to emerge in a system that lets them treat their workers as less than, that lets them treat their workers as subhuman. And what we have to change systematically is the rules so that what we hope people will voluntarily do We can't just rely on that. We have to say, if you want the privilege of building a business, then you need to pay your workers a living wage, and you're going to pay taxes such that we as a people, through our government, ensure that everyone has health insurance. You know, rights and privileges come together. You know, the far right loves to talk about rights, but then and they like to talk about responsibility um, Senator Turner, when it has to do with the responsibilities they want to put on the shoulders of low-income people.
0: Yes.
3: But what about the responsibilities that business people have to figure out a business idea that's good enough to support a living wage for all of their workers? You know, that's something that really sticks in my craw, which is this idea of responsibility. It's always about personal responsibility for low-income people, yes. but it's never about personal responsibility for the rich people who have an obligation to others.
0: That's right, and can we just rest right there? Because I remember, I'm old enough to remember the Great Recession when we were going through that, and we were told "too big to fail." Got to bail, bail these banks out. Got to do it. There was no person personal responsibility lecture there for those corporations, those banks that deliberately did what they did to individuals. It was real. People lost their homes. People lost their livelihoods. I mean, by way of example, the the black community lost 50%. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you know these things. 50% of of its wealth was lost during the Great Recession. But I didn't hear, I mean, I don't know anybody that has paid the price for that uh, legally for what they did to the black community and then other communities by extension, you know, because most people their greatest asset is also their greatest liability for most people in this country. If in fact they are, they do get the opportunity to buy a home. That's, that's where it's at. That's their biggest investment. And when you have one segment of the population that is already put in a systemic situation where they are at the bottom, most of the time on all issues negative, and then they lose 50% of their wealth, during the Great Recession. I don't I don't remember anybody going to jail, anybody paying a big fine. I don't see anybody from a systemic point of view trying to bring restoration to the black community for that. But what I really did not hear is that res- individual responsibility or corporate responsibility for that matter. But did I miss something? Maybe I
3: missed that. You did not miss it. Um and and you're right. And and this is why people are mad as hell. They should be mad as I'm hell.
0: Mad as hell, too.
3: Yeah. You know, it's so funny when the media talks about, oh, you know, blah, 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 bipartisanship, blah, blah, blah. They should get out of their little echo chamber in DC and get out in the country. And, and I mean, everywhere from California to New York to Georgia, Texas, Ohio, and everywhere in between. People have been sold a raw deal. Yes.
0: No, they have. And it's not getting any
3: better. And I thought and hoped and prayed that the pandemic, in shining light on a lot of the severities that you and I know and 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 take to heart, but maybe would have exposed to so many others, would change behavior. For example, how we haven't come out of the pandemic with an urgency for single-payer health insurance when we have a health crisis in the pandemic that caused mass unemployment when health insurance is tied to unemployment. How that wasn't. The catalyst to move us to universal health care is just beyond me. And it, it really reinforces to me that we need political revolution.
0: Yeah, we
3: do. I'd I'll, I'll, um, like to share a journey I went through myself in 20, as you know. Sure. I followed your lead and, and supported Senator Sanders and was a surrogate. Yeah. And very enthusiastically so. There was a period of time where I was considering supporting Senator Warren, sure. who I continued to admire. Yes, And ultimately, I went with Senator Sanders because I think that his theory of change is right, which is it's too broken. We need a political revolution. We need political revolution in municipalities. We need political revolution in states. We need political revolution in Congress. And I I wish incremental change within the system was good enough. And I perceived that to be the Warren theory of change. And it just came around to the fact that no, it's it's too deeply broken for anything less than a mass movement driven political revolution.
0: That's right. You know, I'm with you. I'm, I am jumping up and down and saying, hello, somebody, let's get to it right now. And that's really what the movement has been doing, at least as I see it. I, I call it the 21st century version of the progressive movement because they're. Uh, Have been progressive movement, progressive people, groups of conscious minded people have gotten together over the course of the history of this country to fight for humanity. And to me, that is what the progressive movement is really all about. It's you cannot argue. I mean, one could choose to argue about how to do it. But if you have groups of people saying we need universal health care, we need to cancel student debt, we need to hold corporations responsible, we need to hold the ultra ultra wealthy responsible and tax them responsibly so that we have money in a social pot in our social contract so that we can provide the things that we collectively need. And I think sometimes, Joe. People miss just the basics about this government is designed for us to do collectively what we cannot do as individuals and part of our both our obligation and responsibility to each other, to our sisters and brothers, family and friends throughout the world. What is our collective responsibility to Mother Earth, to the ecosystem of life? That, you know, government should be right there on all levels, but particularly the, the federal government. So it just really boggles my mind when people come up and make all of the excuses in the world why we cannot do the right thing knowing on the other end of that not only are we hurting the majority of people in this country and I keep saying the world because we are citizens of the world and COVID really showed us if we didn't get it before that what affects one directly quote Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. affects us all indirectly we didn't get that lesson before Joe people got to know that that is the reality of life that will not change. That is it. And I think, I think we, you know, this hopefully this situation gave some people a chance to ponder and to think about life clearly and in a more transformational way. Cause what you're talking about right now is transformation, not reform, transformation.
3: Well, I believe that one of the opportunities that we have in our movement is to re engage with faith. Yeah. So many of the people I know, including you are inspired to the progressive because of their faith and embedded in what we've discussed here so far already is this tension between abundance and scarcity. And I believe that when you come from a place of loving inclusive faith, not the kind of faith that's animated Fox news that judges, but the type that loves and embraces and understands the notion of God is infinite. Then you start to see the world through a lens of, abundance that people living with financial security and having health care doesn't have to come at the exclusion of other people doing well, that one plus one can equal three when you create a society where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think that some of our disengagement with with faith in a sincere and loving way, instead of faith that's exclusionary and, and judgmental, has been at the heart of why over the last 40 years we've fallen as a society into this idea of a zero-sum game. Whereas, you know, when you understand the world through a faith lens and and tap into this notion of infinite, you realize that the world isn't a zero-sum game. And in fact, the world gets bigger and better for everyone when it gets better for every single person.
0: That's exactly right. You know, you're making me think of a few things. One is I always like to use this as an example when we talk about infinite and that there's enough there's abundance and I tell people close your eyes and pretend like you're on the beach you know now open your eyes and you can see sand for as far as your eyes can see there's even sand beyond what you can physically see but let's just deal with what you can see right now and if there were 10 people on that beach and all 10 of us had a bucket and you look to your left look to your right and you were told get as much sand as you can put in that bucket you wouldn't worry about whether there was enough sand because there's sand beyond even what your eyes can see. So imagine that as our society. Now, we got to work harder, cultivate more, create the opportunities for that abundance. But if it was merely about your bucket and sand, even though you had nine other people on this beautiful beach with you, you would not be worrying about whether or not there's enough sand because there is enough sand. You see it and you know that it's there beyond. And and, and I'm, I'm loving. And then the other point that you made me think about in terms of using faith to edify and to lift is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I'm paraphrasing, so all of the the folks don't, when they start, when they tune in to listen to our journey, Joel, I don't want them to say Sister Turner didn't get that quite right. I am going to (laughs) confess it right now, but there were, Jesus was being challenged, as we know, like in the Christian faith, and he was challenged often by people with special titles, much like is happening today, because he came for the downtrodden and, and the people that, that needed and and believed And he he really critiqued The system he did in his time But anyway this this lawyer I believe it was a lawyer came up to Jesus And asked him what is the greatest commandment And Jesus said to love thy God with all their heart Soul and mind something like that But he said the second commandment And this one I do have exactly right To love thy neighbor as thyself and that's really what you and I are talking about and how can we overlay that in our actions on a regular basis through all of the the, the factors or p- pillars, if you will, of society, be it social, political, economic, racial or environmental. If we overlay that as the foundation for everything that we do, then there is really very little room for not uplifting the least of these.
3: One, what's I think often overlooked in that is that loving your neighbor as yourself is only meaningful if you love and accept yourself. True that. And I think one of the reasons that people are unkind to each other in this modern society is that they don't accept themselves. And, And society is responsible for that as well, because we send so many daily, multiple times a day messages to people through social media and elsewhere that you're not good enough. You're not good enough because you don't have this. You're not good enough because you don't look like this. All these reasons you're not good enough. And then people internalize that. And if you internalize that you're not good enough and the charge is to treat and love others as you love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, then you're not going to love others very well.
0: That is exactly right. You're right. That is certainly the other part of that. And social media is such a great tool for Uh, spreading information, if it's the right information and good information and and making the world smaller. And on the other hand, it it can be used for really evil purposes. And it does get really ugly in social media, especially on Twitter. And so I definitely agree with you in terms of the messages that we are bombarded with on a constant, constant basis. So we got to deconstruct our construction and really question ourselves. You know, Michael Jackson had a song I'm I'm looking at the man in the mirror and uh, we need to look at the person in the mirror and critique and reflect on ourselves and what kind of people that we want to be, because that does impact every other thing. Just as you were talking about how whether or not somebody is making a good wage, a living wage impacts every other thing that happens in their lives. I do believe the same is true in terms of how we feel about our collective responsibility but you got to have the individual responsibility pours into the collective responsibility so i am right with you on that what do you think you know the progressive agenda is big it is vast the progressive movement can be unwieldy it cannot be controlled Uh, the 21st century version of the progressive movement demands are being made in very strong ways and certainly we have to give senator bernie sanders a lot of credit for shaking or awakening the sleeping giants in 2015, when he declared his candidacy for president, I often say he was the he was the the spark, and and we are the fire. We being the movement itself. But what what does the progressive movement mean to you? And in your opinion, is it good for the economy?
3: The progressive movement to me means that we're building a society that serves humanity rather than organizing a society where humanity serves the economy. Mm. I think the libertarianism and neoliberalism, either wittingly or unwittingly, has succumbed to this idea that we exist to serve the market. And I think progressivism needs to be about the market and the government existing to serve us as human and humankind. And I think that that is a core tension that you see in politics. It's not a tension that's perhaps expressed explicitly in tweets, but if you really peel back layers, that's really what you're getting at. On one hand, all of us as these things in a system, and on the other hand, a system that serves all of us as, as humans and as people. And I think that the more, I believe the more we center government as something that serves all of us as humans, the more successful we're going to be because I think all of us are created inside of this this magnetic draw towards the things that elevate our humanity. None of us want to be thingified yes. and relegated to the status of thing. And that's one of the weaknesses of social media is it relegates us all into these tech avatars that diminishes our humanity. And You see it in all kinds of microcosms where you know people say things to each other on twitter that they would never say to each other in real life
0: so true
3: because when you've gone into this digital sphere you've now stripped interactions of their humanity and i think that i hope will be the guiding light of our movement is we always have to be centering humanity into our policies and interactions as how we treat each other and i think that we do a pretty good job of that on the policy level um i think how we treat each other has room for improvement. I think that even in our own movement, we sometimes treat each other as things instead of humans. To your question about how the progressive movement is for the economy, it's, it's what the economy needs. And I think it's, it's um, you know, it's circular. If the economy is there to serve humans and the progressive movement is about government that serves human need, then of course they should work together perfectly And I think all the weaknesses in the economy are results of laws that subjugate us into things instead of centering our humanity. Living wage, single-payer health insurance, a housing guarantee, racial justice, student debt relief. These are all things that are about honoring people's human dignity. But they also happen to be all things that would be rocket fuel for the economy.
0: That's right. But people, some people who are stuck in, stuck in their ways or either just really don't want to see this the way that we see it because they answer to other bosses. So they answer to the corporate interest that would, or feel as though that they would lose out if, society was reorganized, reimagined in the way that you are putting forth. But I think your counter to that is that, I mean, more, if it's been into the wheel of humanity, then it will naturally default to what is in the best interest of humanity instead of the way it responds right now, which is what is in the best interest of the powerful few. Am I interpreting that correctly?
3: Oh, you're absolutely right. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
2: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
3: Same old us. Oh, yeah.
2: And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics,
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: How do we, hmm, I mean, this right here is the, I, I could talk all day with you about this particular point and, and, you, and, and, and you also laid out that sometimes even we in our movement, I think the issues that we are fighting for are damn near perfect. But we are imperfect because we are human beings and we do take it there. And we don't have sometimes uh, enough mercy on people. We assume bad intentions from the beginning, even from people who we respect in this movement. And sometimes to me, we can have a, a circular firing squad mentality in the progressive movement. What what is your take on and, and and the movement is really young, you know, and it was born out of a sense of urgency which this is a 911, you know, uh, what's your emergency? The world is on fire. That's my emergency. We we got to do something about it. I, but I think in that we're very young, the movement is still very young.
3: You're right, and I think that there is an area for evolution and growth in our movement around the need to center forgiveness and mercy towards others who make mistakes. You and I make mistakes. We're going to make more mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. I mean, part of centering all of us as humans and building public policy that serves our humanity is acknowledging that we make mistakes. And what's interesting is that forgiveness and mercy animates a lot of the policies that we advocate criminal justice reform is fundamentally about the moral necessity of, of forgiveness and mercy. Yet, sometimes when we interact with each other and um, individuals make mistakes, uh, we don't have mercy on each other. And, and the challenge is, yes, it requires moral judgment. You know, there is a spectrum and some things are easier to forgive than others. But um, I think there needs to be a lot more conversation about the need to be gentle with each other, with each other and ourselves.
0: As we fight for good causes be gentle on on each other. No, I like that a lot. So you you work to expand the earned income tax credit in California in your state where you are and in many other parts of the country. Can you... Talk about why our tax system is rigged, and if whether or not I'm using the proper word by calling it rigged, whether or not you consider it rigged, I consider it rigged. But do you consider the tax system rigged? And if, however you answer, uh, why and, and what can we do about it?
3: It's definitely rigged. The rules are clear. If you work to make money, you pay higher tax rates than if you make money through investments, and it's supposed to be that as you make more and more and more money, you pay higher rates, but it's not actually that way. And I think that the establishment uses a lot of numbers and jargon to confuse what's a pretty simple issue. Take the federal income tax rates, for example, the highest tax rate begins, you know, $450,000 range. So now of course making $600,000 is a blessing, but making $6 million is, is an excessive abundance and making $60 million is extreme wealth and making $600 million is, you know, in the land of the absurd. Yet people pay the same tax rate when they make $600 million or $60 million, than when they make 600000 Not to mention that those tax rates on those numbers as they get really sky high aren't that much higher than people who are making two or $300,000 a year and people are making $100,000 a year. And then we load up the tax code with all kinds of impediments so that people who are making 20 and 30 and $40,000 a year aren't actually able to get the benefits that our legislators, whom we've elected, have passed into law. And the earned income tax credit is a case point. To be clear, the earned income tax credit isn't itself the single answer to poverty. And, And I don't think there is a single answer to really any problem in human life. It's always a mixture of things but it's a good program. And what it does is gives a tax credit back to people who earn a low income. So if you earn less than roughly $45,000, you get cash back from the government. Even if you didn't owe any taxes that year, you can end up getting cash back. So it almost operates like a reverse tax rate instead of owing you get back. But here's the rub. You have to file a tax return to get the earned income tax credit. Now. If one of the benefits of the earned income tax credit is supposed to be that for people who don't owe any taxes because perhaps they earn $20,000 a year, they can still get cash back to this earned income tax credit. But people who don't owe any taxes don't know to file a tax return.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> then that There's a design feature in this program that leaves a lot of people out in the cold. And what's the consequence? Every year, there's about $80 billion with a B Of earned income tax credits and child tax credits at the federal and state level that are budgeted by our legislators that never get claimed by low-income people because these low-income people don't know about it
0: yeah
3: and so that's an example of how the tax code even when it has programs that are designed to make work pay better yeah has these design flaws that make it unfair and then of course what cuts through it all is the lack of a wealth tax yes you know, there was recently a ProPublica article that made uh, light of the multi-billionaires are increasing their wealth and are not paying any taxes. But the, the problem is actually that at least on that issue, those multi-billionaires are, are, are obeying the law. It's just the law is really dumb. The law says you don't pay taxes on your wealth unless you sell something. And what there ought to be is there ought to be a wealth tax on your stocks, just like there's a property tax on real estate. And, you know, again, Senator Turner, like with so many other things, we hear all the reasons, oh, it can't be done. It's, you know, it should be like Armageddon if we do this tax policy. Yeah. But the reality is every year, hundreds of millions of people pay property tax. And it's, a, you know, it's like 1% of your property's value. It depends on the state. You can put the same kind of property tax on stocks so that when a billionaire's stock holdings, go up in value by $3 billion in a given year, they pay taxes on that, even if they don't want to sell it. And so those are just some examples of how the tax code is just written to reward wealth and privilege. Whether that's rigged or not, what's factual is that it's written to reward wealth and privilege. And what we ought to have is a tax code that rewards work.
0: And we can change that. I mean, you know, I had a mentor who used to say, it doesn't matter whether or not you meant to kill me on purpose or by accident, dead is dead. And yes. uh, I think that is very fitting for the tax code that we're talking about right now, which, but I would venture to say it is done on purpose. The systems are designed are created by people. And since they were created this way, the beautiful thing about what we're talking about is that we can create a new system. It does not have to, just because this is the reality today doesn't mean it has to be the reality Uh, Tomorrow, And we really should be ashamed of ourselves again. For a long time, this has been a problem. This is not new, but especially ashamed of ourselves as more revelations are coming out about how the COVID pandemic has exacerbated suffering that has already been baked in to the system, and the system is created by people. Because just saying the system, Joe, makes people think... That it's some, you know, what you, what you described earlier when we first talk, started talking, like it's some far away, far out there in space. (laughs) No, the system is designed by the people we elect to office on all those levels of government. It has a face. It has faces. It has many faces and names. And, uh, we need to just go ahead and, and tell the truth about that. And then. We can, and replace those people. Yeah, replace them. Hello, and these somebody. These are
3: people they put on their their clothes in the morning, and they go to the bathroom, and they eat food, and they're just like all oh, the rest of us, except they're making really bad policy choices. Yeah, they are. That hurts. But that's actually a reason for optimism, don't you think? Because. If it were this system that came from outer space, <laughs> then that would be really bad because it would mean that we don't control it. That's right. That's right. Speak- but if it's people that have just made bad choices, then we just need to elect different people and make good choices.
0: Amen to that. That there's promise in the problem. You know, I chuckled a little bit when you said, you know, we, we are on this out of space theme because uh, one of the you know the wealthiest man in the world is is going out of space, and somebody paid. I forget how many millions of dollars to, to go out of space with him. And I was thinking to myself, man, these fools going to mess it up there too.
3: Yeah. You know? <laughs> There's something so deeply sad about that too. Oh, I read my a God. quote that, um, that Bezos said something like, I don't know what else I would do with my money than explore outer space. Oh, oh my God. God. you kidding me? Like, what's the money he has? He could end poverty in the United States.
0: Yes, he could. You know what? We got a whole to-do list for him. How about paying your Amazon workers a living wage? How about making sure they have health care? Making sure that they are not surveilled on the job. Making sure that drivers are not too scared to go to the bathroom because they won't make their stops. How about that? I mean, Joe, we can come up with a whole list right here.
3: I know, I know, and it, it it touches on this point that's both optimistic but also really deeply angering. The problems that that we face are all fixable and actually pretty easily. So they're all basically problems of money. There's some problems we do face, like curing diseases, that aren't as simple as money. And I'm empathetic for the struggle we face in curing diseases because I I don't I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to figure those things out, but. Ending poverty, providing everyone with health insurance, relieving student debt, a housing guarantee. These are just things that require money.
0: How about that? And we are the wealthiest nation. We can we can solve this and also be more of a leader in the world because we are not necessarily a leader on these things. Uh, take health care, one of our favorite subjects to talk about. We are definitely not the leader on universal health care, given the fact that every industrialized nation on the face of the earth has some form of universal health care, but yet the mighty United States of America does not. And we continue to make, we being the people who control the system, continue to make excuses about why we cannot do this.
3: You know, the health insurance one is, I think is particularly frustrating and poorly analyzed. There's really only one industry that opposes universal health insurance and that's the health insurance industry so i actually think that it may end up being one of the easier issues for us to navigate because most business people really want single-payer health insurance there's this notion that it's you know opposed by business it's not it's really not true um almost every business person would love to be out of the job of having to administer health insurance sincerely even business people i talk to who are you know non-ideological or maybe right of center they would all to a person rather pay more taxes for a single payer system that everyone is in as opposed to having to administer health care for their business. Because no entrepreneur starts a business to get into the responsibility of, of administering health care. Yes. And um, there's only one part of the private sector that opposes single payer health insurance. It's the health insurance. And industry.
0: that's the health insurance industry.
3: But that could create an opportunity for some really interesting alliances where... You know, we could create coalition all the way from working people and the multiracial coalition to a lot of big businesses that would love to get out of the health insurance administration business. And, you know, there can be some potentially unlikely allies that could kind of outnumber the health The health insurance industry. is It is not that big.
0: I can see that. I can really reimagine that. I can. You and Wendell, I'm telling you, the mad, the mad beautiful scientists and others who are part of that that business uh, for for Medicare for All thinking of these things, but no, that makes lots of sense Uh, economically, tactically, morally, all all of that goes hand in hand. I could definitely see that kind of delicious coalition being put together and pushing for that. Well, you have definitely given us uh, our homework, Joe, and uh, I appreciate you, and I know that The listeners of Hello Somebody Appreciate You Too. And I got to listen to this episode again and again and again, because you taught many lessons in our time together today. And I hope you'll be willing to come back and we'll tackle some more issues.
3: I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, Thank you so much. I, you know, I admire you so much. And I've learned a lot from listening and watching and following you. And it's really just been a treat to be able to join you today.
0: Oh, thank you, Joe. The pleasure is all mine. You are such a a bright star. We need many. And because of your position, you know, how you have been blessed uh, financially to have someone with your kind of courage to speak a certain type of truth to power is just definitely a a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, I'm I'm reading a book right now that is written by uh, two people who uh, are part of the patriotic millionaires. And uh, it is really, really a good book and just really breaking it down in the ways that you break it down because you take these complex financial, fiscal, economic issues and you you distill them down in ways that everybody can understand. And it makes a whole lot of sense. And Morris Pearl and uh, Erica, I'm blanking on Erica's last name right now, but uh, they, they wrote this book and it really, really is good. And just the whole notion of that there are patriotic ultra wealthy people out there who know that this system is untenable. We cannot sustain this way. It is the second wave of the gilded age, as Dr. Robert Reich often calls it. And I wanna close with a quote. So you and while I'm giving you mine, I want you to think of one too. But you know, it just makes me everything mm-hmm. that we talked about today reminds me of something that uh, Ella Baker, a civil rights leader, that she she once said that we who believe in freedom cannot rest. And I think that quote is relevant in almost any conversation about, about justice and about all of our, both individual and collective responsibilities to be stewards of and fighters for justice for all times, for all people. But we who believe in freedom cannot rest. So I guess, Joe, on the other side of that, there will be no resting <laughs> for many of us. <laughs> and what, what's yours? What are you thinking?
3: My um my favorite quote is from my favorite Dr. King speech uh, that I listen to often. Okay. Thanks to, um, to, thanks to YouTube. And it's um, his unfulfilled dream speech from 1968. And there's a line in it that says, um, one of the great agonies of life is that we are constantly trying to finish that which is unfinishable. We are commanded to do that.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. And I think there's so much moral truth in that, that, we have to do the things that we won't finish in our own lives. Yes. I I hope we'll achieve these great big progressive goals in our lives, but that's not the point. The point is that we have to keep it in motion.
0: That's exactly right. I'm loving that. Ooh, we could go on and on. Hello, somebody on that. Let's go ahead and do the work that we might not necessarily finish in our lifetime, but it is well worth being on the mission of justice in all of its forms. All right, Joe Sambar, we must, we must do this again, and we will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Got my PrevNAR20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong, and asthmatic, and at higher risk
1: Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is...